All right, Rue. So you know I told you to come prepared and that this was Anna's birthday special. Oh, my God. <laughs> I didn't come prepared, Matt. <laughs> I think we're safe, right? Okay. Anna messaged me and she was like, oh, I'm, re- I'm really ill today. I, I don't think I can make the recording. So I was like, you're going to miss your birthday special. Like, I had all of the stuff planned. Like, you know, got a cake, got a party blower, like all this stuff. <laughs> and she just messages me back like, my birthday? <laughs> okay. Turns out. I had put in my calendar the day that she had asked for holiday for her birthday, not actually her birthday. So her birthday's in July. So I think we're safe. Oh, my gosh. Why is she taking mid-February or mid-January off for her birthday? Oh, no, it was the date that she asked for holiday rather than like... Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So uh, I'm I'm an idiot there. So are you saying that you have a cake in front of you right now that you have to eat? I did buy a cake. Uh, yes. <laughs> I'm so happy that you bought a cake. <laughs> yeah, that happened. That's pretty killer. So it's just the two of us. We have got so much Watchtower Weekly this week and zero time to fit it in the episode. <laughs> yeah, because we had a, boy, we had a great interview with Brendan Ike because he had so many great things to say. He was a lot of fun to talk to, yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right, Matt, well, why don't we dig in? We'll see what we can get through in the Watchtower Weeklies. So the New York Times are talking about Clearview facial recognition and they've launched an investigation into this company. Basically, this company, what it does is it scrapes all and copies all public databases of images like Twitter, Facebook, and offers these facial recognition images to law enforcement. So how it works is police actually upload a photo. It could be from CCTV or something like that. It will then, you know, go through all of these photos and find out, oh, actually, this is the guy that this picture most relates to. And then they can see, oh, okay, that's got a name and a profile and all that kind of stuff attached to it. Mm -hmm. So there are a couple of things that the New York Times flags. Troy Hunt actually tweeted that this was the kind of potentially the end of privacy as we know it. Because, first of all, when the police upload a photo, they're uploading it to a server with what the New York Times described as untested security. Uh-huh. The software also stores photos regardless of if you later on remove them. Of course. So it's essentially holding these photos itself without you knowing. It claims to have three billion photos And it's also actively monitoring who the police are searching for. So when they searched for this uh, journalist, that the journalist was talking to the police and talking about this piece of software and all all the things to do with it, Clearview actually contacted that police officer and asked them not to speak to journalists. Mm, Okay, well, that's where it gets a little dicey. (laughs) Yeah. Nothing you said up until that point, really. I was like, yeah, no, that's all right. You know, that all sounds correct. But don't be don't be gross about it. Yeah. It just when we bring stuff like this to a private company, I always find it a bit dystopian. (sighs) So I actually I'm finding myself taking the opposite stance on this one. I think this is I kind of think that like the tech and and sort of the approach is kind of neat. Sure. People are uploading pictures all the time themselves. Yeah, build a database out of it. I mean, you know, you should probably try and keep it secure. But again, this is stuff that people have put on the Internet. If it's on the Internet, it's available. Right. But like, think about the implications of this, right? Mm -hmm. If someone linked to law enforcement or or something like that wanted to find someone who was in witness protection and you could essentially find people in the background of other people's images and that type of thing. This has far reaching issues that I don't think 
are really being thought of at the moment. Until recently, the, the greatest hits of this developer included an iPhone game that let you put uh, Trump's hair on your photo. Oh, right? Is this really the person that we want building the next kind of prism? <laughs> You know, all right. I mean, I didn't have that piece of information going into my, my thought process behind it. The weaponization of this is, you know, the possibilities are endless, really. Yeah, you're right. You could find out exactly what photos in the background of locations and all, all this kind of stuff. You could dig up secrets about people, blackmail them and all, all kinds of stuff. Like if you, if you think about people opening secondary accounts... Right. I'm going to open I've got a fake name. I'm going to open a random Facebook account for that. And that's where I'm going to talk about horses. And that is absolutely your right to do that. It should be, of course, naturally, it should be a thing of privacy that you can do stuff like that. Obviously, you know, the things that people open secondary accounts for are rarely horses. You know, Usually it's a lot worse than that. But again, like that is your right to do that. <laughs> and I think if they open this up. That's the kind of thing that worries me. What if private security firms start using this? And then yeah. What if someone decides to Google their X with this? It's, it's true. Yeah. The stalking element of this. <laughs> and I've been watching that horrible show on Netflix. Have you seen it? It's called You. No. It chills my soul. Oh, no. It really does. It's about stalking and it's also about the romantic relationship that he has. And oh, it is absolutely chilling oh yes okay i know what you're talking about and all i was thinking about while reading this article is you could find someone really easily and uh there's a scene in this you program where he brings out and says oh yeah you know this person is alive they just they changed their name and i was thinking like if you wanted to change your name and if you wanted another life and people do this for many different reasons not not just legal ones this would essentially end that Right. We always say like biometrics, the, the trick is that you, you can't really change your face or your fingerprint. Like the thing that makes me really nervous about that, this kind of technology is you then don't have that opportunity. Right. Your identity is linked to your face. Right. I kind of assume this thing, <laughs> this sort of thing exists anyway. Like I, I'm pretty sure that there is a government group somewhere on the planet that has some that has built something like this already. Like, why wouldn't they? I guess that's true. Yeah. It's a concerning one, I'd say, especially led by someone who, I don't know, making a Trump hair app really just puts you into a certain definition in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, this is good. I, I appreciate sort of the, the dystopian bend that we took people down just to kick off Watchtower Weekly. Should we talk about Citrix a little bit with our friend uh, Graham Cluley? Yeah, this is an odd one as well. And, and someone actually emailed us in about this. I'm not going to read out their name because that's creepy. But thank you very much for, for emailing us about that. No, but we will post a, a picture of their face to, to our Twitter account. And you can you can search them uh, with an online database. You can just search it and, and find that, you know. I think generic white guy with glasses could be my new kind of pseudo identity <laughs> i could just take anybody like in the mozilla event that we hosted with with mozilla there was something that would scan your face and it would show you famous people and you know open databases and it would find pictures of people that looked like you and so i walked past it what does it do shows on a huge screen in the middle of a, a privacy exhibit edward snowden <laughs> and it's like no nope, that's not me i'm not on a list I'm not even American. Please don't do this. It's just on a huge TV. It's just a picture of Edward Snowden. 
That's so good. Sir, come with us, please. Uh, All right. So on GrahamCluley.com, over the weekend, Citrix announced that its plans to release patches for critical vulnerabilities in its technology used by tens of thousands of businesses worldwide have significantly sped up. In the Netherlands, government and other big organizations like the Schiphol Airport, which which is a huge aviation hub, energy suppliers, financial institutions all use Citrix. And apparently there was a security leak on their servers. Uh, the NCSC in the Netherlands advised the government to shut down Citrix as they don't know the extent of the breach and if hackers could obtain sensitive information. Please pardon the explicit tag uh, that, that inevitably is going to come with this. This vulnerability is called the Shitrix vulnerability. And so the first patches for that vulnerability are now rolling out. But this has caused some real worldwide havoc, particularly in the Netherlands. Like They've seen some some pretty terrible fallout from this vulnerability. Yeah, the, the Citrix application delivery controller and the Citrix gateway servers formerly known as Netscaler and Netscaler Gateway were found to contain a security vulnerability in December that could allow an inauthenticated attacker to perform arbitrary code execution. Yeah, it's a bad one. If you're responsible for securing your company's infrastructure, you might want to look now and kind of follow migration recommendations and ready yourself to update the firmware. Yeah, for sure. The Netherlands National Cybersecurity Center was being pretty explicit about what it said were the shortcomings of the security mitigation. The NCSC emphasizes that there is currently no good guaranteed reliable solution for all versions of Citrix ADC and Citrix Gateway servers, uh, the Dutch agency said on Tuesday. Depending on the impact, the NCSC recommends considering switching off Citrix, uh, the Citrix ADC and Gateway servers. So the Netherlands National Cybersecurity Center basically says like their fixes are not fixes and you should just turn off Citrix. Yikes. So next, we've got a really good one. Uh, and, and not really good in the sense of like, you know, it's targeting a large charitable organization, but good in the sense that uh, it's it's quite funny. So a Londoner who hacked the National Lottery made off with just five pounds and, and will spend up to nine months in prison for his crimes. The interesting thing here is uh, he used a brute forcing tool, Century MBA. It relies on website specific config files to automate the testing of user credentials and obviously... He was using a bunch of stolen credentials, got into uh, people's lottery accounts and then, you know, bought tickets. And because your chances of actually winning the lottery are fairly low, uh, he, he, he got a fiver. <laughs> yeah. Don't play the lottery thinking you're going to win or don't hack the lottery at all, to be honest. I love the subheadline on this, this article on the register. You targeted a large charitable organization, thundered judge. <laughs> Just picturing a judge sort of pointing at this guy. Yeah. I mean, the crazy thing is that he got away with five pounds, which is, to be honest, more than I've won on the lottery. <laughs> yeah, I was just rereading it. I was like, really? Five pounds? Like, is there what part of this am I missing? Passing sentence, the judge said, in my view, the gravity of your offending does not lie in the loss occasioned by the hacking and by the fraud. That indeed was low. But it does lie in the fact that you targeted a large charitable organization, namely the National Lottery, which gives something like $30 million per week to chosen charities. Wow. Yeah, don't do that. Good job, dude. Uh, he, he was made to pay back the uh, the fiver as well. So <laughs> justice is its finest. Yes. I want to follow up a little bit, Matt, on a story we did on our last episode about SureBet 247. Oh, yeah. The, the ones that they had, a, they had a proper firewall, right? It was fine. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, they were not N- hacked. None of these, um, these fly-by-night firewalls, 
right? They had they had the proper tra- trousers up, belt on, firewall. Belt and suspenders, yeah. And there was this guy online, I don't know if you've heard of him, Troy Hunt, who was saying slanderous things that, you know, that they were exposed and hacked. Oh, and, I'm sure he didn't have proof. No. I'm, I'm sure he just went at it. Just shooting from the hip, you know, you know, like Troy Hunt does. No. Troy Hunt was right. I see, sure that 247 was hacked. Troy did actually. All right. You assured us that you had a firewall. <laughs> Troy actually tweeted that. <laughs> sure bet. Uh, we were not breached. We were not breached. We were not breached. We were not breached. Oh, uh, we were breached. <laughs> yeah, they finally caved and said, it turns out, yes, that they had a breach. But don't worry. Everyone's data is still safe and secure. I mean, if you were a sure bet customer... I can't think that you could run away fast enough, quite honestly. Like this whole this whole nonsense. Yeah, it's 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 very odd. Uh, they actually put in the email that they sent out to customers. We wish to reiterate that no passwords, bank card details, and financial transactions of the affected customers on that day have been in any way compromised. Unreal, unreal. Well, listen, Matt, have you switched browsers lately? Are you using any anything new for your browser these days? I am. I I, I do use Brave. You use Brave. All right. That's very cool. You know what would be neat is if we could get the creative Brave to come guest on this show. Right. But, that, you know, that's a that's a stretch. Right? It's a stretch. Yeah. I mean, did, that guy also made JavaScript. Like. Right. And uh, and founded Mozilla. Right. Yeah. So anyway, we do have a great interview this week, though. Um, and oh, it turns out it is uh, with the creator of Brave and JavaScript and many other things. So as I am want to say, and I don't think it's ever made it into the show, let's drop it in here. So joining us today, we have Brendan Ike, who is the co-founder and CEO of Brave Software. He previously co-founded the Mozilla Project and Foundation. And while at Mozilla, Brendan helped launch the award-winning Firefox web browser. And if that wasn't enough, he's also the inventor of JavaScript, which is the Internet's most widely used programming language. Uh, so, you know, just a small, small little CV then. Welcome, Brendan, do you want to give us a little self-intro in your own words? I think that covers it. Uh, I've been working in technology and in software really since uh, 1985 when I got out of graduate school. Uh, but I have a pretty short CV. I was at Silicon Graphics and then a company you never heard of called MicroUnity that was doing everything. And I mean everything, hardware and software. And then I was at Netscape, of course. And Mozilla was like a successor to Netscape. And now with Brave taking on what I think is the biggest problem for users today, which is what people call surveillance capitalism. That sort of notion that you searched for shoes on, on one website and all of a sudden you notice that you're getting shoe advertisements in all of your, your search results and such. Yeah, or you're, you're being uh, stalked with geofencing or you're being served malware as ads or, you know, worse things. <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow. So would you say that that's sort of Brave's main main differentiator from, from other web browsers? Is, the, is this real focus on trying to protect the users? There are two aspects to this. One is we protect by default where other browsers are only some of them starting to do this as users demand it. And for the longest time, browsers didn't do anything to block tracking or surveillance. But the other aspect is when you do that, you break almost all advertising and real publishers, let's say news sites in particular, need some kind of revenue that isn't based on people subscribing. It's great if they can get subscribers, but they're not going to get enough to cover their costs. They rely on digital ads. So protecting users from tracking has this collateral damage upon publishers. And we want to and our users want us to help make up for that. So we have an optional feature in Brave that allows you to get paid for private ads and give your revenue share back easily. That's the way it flows by default. 
to your favorite sites and creators. You can tip, you can set manual sort of Patreon style levels of support in the browser, and you can let local analytics automatically give back the rest of your monthly budget. You don't have to fiddle with it a lot, and it's private and anonymous. We don't even see it on our servers. We don't want to have your data. We want the browser to be the place where you control your data because that's where it originates. That's where you do your searching and your clicking. It's where you open tabs and, and fill forms. Wow, that's fascinating. So it wasn't so much a this notion of like, yeah, sure, we know that advertisers are out there and, and we know that they're paying the publishers and stuff, but we don't care about any of that. We just want to protect the users. But instead, it was really trying to strike a balance and figure out a way to make it work for all the invested parties. Yes, a lot of our lead users, Eric Von Hippel of MIT's term for the, the users who actually are creators and generate new markets or invent new tech. Sometimes they just invent local widgets. He talks about plumbers 100 years ago inventing their own tools, which became standardized, or things like windsurfing or running shoes, which are kind of user innovation networks uh, developed those things. West Coast uh, fiberglass surfboards after World War II. These lead users are very valuable and they are thoughtful. A lot of them are ecologically minded in the sense that they see advertising as unfortunately, required by publishers to make ends meet. So they want to give back. In fact, the earliest requests we heard at Brave, and this was an idea we were already working on, were, I know I never click on an ad, but there's something called a cost per impression ad, where even if the ad just appears or a quarter of the ad shows for two seconds, somebody gets paid. And if Brave is blocking that, I want to make up for my my effect there. Other thing I would stress is we don't block advertising as such. If you have a beautiful picture of an endangered species on a, a nature site, and it's just a big picture with a link you can click to give money, and there's no tracking, that doesn't get blocked. We're not against sponsorship ads or ads that don't require tracking. What we block are all the JavaScripts, my invention from 1995, that are used to not only place the ads, but before that, to target you, profile you, and build up dossiers on you. And then after that, if the ad is served, to confirm that you saw it or that you interacted with it. We block those scripts that are involved in this messy business because they are generally operating against your interest. They're tracking you. They're leaking your data all over creation where it can be used to serve malware, as I mentioned. And, and, and that's one of the worst cases, but there are a lot of other problems so by blocking tracking, we protect your privacy, but it turns out almost all the real ads depend on tracking. Even like a beautiful sponsorship or direct sold ad may be served through Google's ad server JavaScript, and we block that. Have you had any feedback or sort of outreach from the advertising community to say, okay, look, we see the writing on the wall. This is not just something that Brave is going to be doing, but this is probably something that's going to take hold across the browser Escape. Is there interest in sort of figuring out ways around how to monetize without tracking? Yes. And in fact, we are offering at the user's discretion this private and anonymous ad system as part of Brave Rewards. So we have a, a triangle in the upper right of Brave. You can click on it. And that's the, the logo for the basic attention token. It's also meant to show the three-sided ecosystem we see as essential for a healthy internet. And that is advertisers, users, and publishers. But because all the advertising today is mediated through these crazy JavaScripts that load from seven degrees of separation from you in the browser, most of which we block, we want to offer a better vision of the browser that mediates private ads locally. And I can talk about how that works without tracking or targeting. It's an interesting topic. But of course, since we're doing this, we're talking to advertisers and they are doing deals with us. So if you go to brave.com slash transparency, you can see uh, countries with deal counts 
In the lower right, you can see in the upper right, when we're paid in fiat currencies, we're buying basic attention tokens for the user's 70% share of the revenue. We give users 70% of that gross revenue, and that by default trickles back to your favorite sites, or you can tip it, you can do both. So we're talking to advertisers, and they're the most game to adapt to a new interesting set of users who are off the grid, as our users are. They know there are some users who just will not do without a, a rigorous tracking protection extension or ad blocking extension. These are users who, if they aren't using Brave, they're using uBlock Origin, which is an extension we admire, which still works on Chrome, but Chrome is talked about breaking certain aspects of it. So if you have these users, they're generally high socioeconomic status users. They're technically savvy. Advertisers want to reach them, and they will meet them on their own terms, including in Brave. So that's why we're doing ad deals and why advertisers are talking to us. I would distinguish advertisers, which are the brands, you know, the big consumer durables and services and other brands that either buy ad space or audience, as they say, they buy audience directly with digital advertising systems like Google or to a lesser extent like us or their agencies, which are generally representing them. I would distinguish those ad buyers from the intermediaries, the so-called middlemen, which are the trackers, the ad exchanges. Again, Google is kind of the biggest. Facebook's in there. Data management platforms, but they make up a, a very complex sort of parasite system <laughs> sitting in the <laughs> middle of the flow of money from the ad buyers, the audience buyers who are the brands that trickles through this system of parasites. And whatever's left when they're done taking their cuts goes to the poor publisher. And it's often less than you'd think. The Interactive Advertising Bureau, which claims to represent everybody in the system, but really is the parasite speaking for the host, <laughs> says, hey, 45% of the gross revenue gets to the publisher. Isn't that great? Well, first of all, that's high. We talk to publishers and they say it's more like 30 or 25 or maybe 20%. Second, 45% is terrible. The Apple App Store gives 70% to the app publisher. In the old days of online media and television, I would say, you sometimes would see 85%. So something has gone wrong. The cut that goes to the media owner or the publisher has gone down year over year. Fraud is rampant. I mentioned malware distribution. That's when somebody who's actually trying to distribute ransomware will buy cheap ad opportunities and put what looks like an ad in there, but the JavaScript actually loads a ransomware exploit kit loader. And then the exploit kit loader tries different ways of attacking your system and, and getting ransomware to take it over and demand you send Bitcoin and train you how to buy Bitcoin to send it. And this actually takes over, you know, not only individuals' machines, like the grandmother who wants to get her PC back because her grandchildren's pictures are on it. And there's a laughing skull telling her, your disk has been encrypted. Here's how to buy Bitcoin and send it to this address. It takes over, you know, hospital PCs and other networks. Some of this is coming through digital ads. The flip side of malware in ads, which is a huge threat and a good reason to block by default, is ad fraud. Because what happens on the other side of the system with real ads is that they get placed into fake publisher pages inside a, a robot, a cloud, headless browser. And that headless browser is scripted to look like a person. It clicks on the ad or it clicks through pages, seems to view ads. And believe it or not, the ad buyer, the brand, will pay for that impression all too often because it has no way of telling that that's a robot. There are vendors in the ad tech space who claim, add our little bit of JavaScript and it will verify that it's a real person and we'll get rid of non-human traffic or invalid traffic for you. But I can tell you as the creator of JavaScript, there's no way for JavaScript to be sure that it isn't in the matrix. Remember in the matrix, they realized when, when Neo saw the black cat twice, that there was a glitch in the matrix, the agents had reprogrammed it. In general, if you're in a botted browser instance, 
looking at a page, pretending to be a human, the script that loaded from the advertiser trying to verify that you're a human is easily fooled and it cannot tell. And it's very unlikely to see the black cat twice. So ad fraud is kind of the dual of malware. And both are facilitated by the very low integrity, inauthentic nature of the whole system. JavaScript was meant to allow you to load scripts from wherever and put them together in your own web app. And I think that was the right choice in the early days because it allowed people to share code and and share libraries and build things quickly. But it certainly bit back over scale and time with things like uh, ad tech. And ad exchanges, which are part of this intermediation I mentioned, this parasitic system, allow the ad buyer and the publisher to meet in a way where they never actually shake hands. They they do deals with different sides of the ad exchange, and they don't necessarily have a way to check, was the other side the real New York Times or was it a fraud bot ran a headless browser against scraped New York Times content to look like a human looking at that page? And advertisers all too often, if they could check, don't check. So there are things like identifiers for the seller of the ad space. And you can go register in an ad exchange for a fake New York Times with your own seller identifier. The ad buyer doesn't necessarily know what the real New York Times seller ID is. But if they did, they might check and they might notice, hey, this was fraud. I'm not paying for that. They may not even be able to check. And crazy things happen where you can use domain names that are owned by the New York Times, but you're the fraud actor and you're entering into a relationship with the ad exchange. Fraud is rampant. Malware distribution is the flip side of that. And these are just two examples of all the problems in the current system that we we block by default. I think, you know, the way I look at things as well is is from kind of the other side, is from the publisher side. And it's the the things that, you know, these ad networks make you install on your own website to get the kind of the full circle of tracking. And, you know, we're one of the, I think, very few, unfortunately, that don't do any advertising on things like the Facebook network, the Twitter network, because they require you to install this kind of pixel on your website and and to get the, the 360 of tracking. Yes, they all do it. Google does it too. Yeah. I mean, what do you think is the, the state of this? Is it enough to kind of block the browser side? Well, it's a good start. And what I have observed, and this goes back to the point I made about lead users, Eric von Hippel's term, similar to uh, Taleb's intransigent minorities, that people who insist on blocking, even though they're a few percent of a market and growing, or maybe over 670 million globally, it hasn't been well studied since a company called PageFair last looked, and PageFair unfortunately has exited. So we don't know how big the global ad blocking, tracking protection user bases, but it's large, hundreds of millions and growing. That has an effect on markets. Whenever you have even a small population, Talib's example is salt, right? All salt is kosher and halal. Nobody's going to make three kinds of salt and sell them just because they have to follow certain rules for certain small minorities of buyers of salt. So all salt complies with all the dietary regulations. And you're seeing this now, this minority effect come to fruition, I would say, also through privacy regulation, which is not fully enforced, but the general data protection regulation in Europe came into effect in May, two years ago now, almost two years ago. I think so, yeah. California now has a privacy act that's on the books and a new version of that coming along. I'm not sure where that'll end up. India has one, Brazil has one. They're all different. They all have different kinds of penalties. I think India has criminal penalties even. Privacy consciousness is rising and it doesn't go backwards. And that means that law and regulation are following 
And the vanguard of this movement is the sort of users who are aware of the problem and can take steps like using tools like uBlock Origin as an extension, using Brave to go beyond by default and give back where they choose to. And that will move markets. I've seen it over and over. And obviously, Firefox restarted the browser market even though it had a growing minority share from a standing start of 16 or more years ago. We used that to not only restart the browser market, we therefore, along with Google, doing things like Google Maps and Gmail, got a bunch of developers interested in using the web. And this was in spite of Internet Explorer at the time being an incompetent browser. That caused the standards bodies to come back to life and start working on things like HTML and JavaScript. It's a tale for another time because that was a difficult process, but it happened. So small things can lead to big things and small market segments can move whole markets. Yeah, and I think especially with GDPR, there has been a small segment of publishers that have just turned off access from Europe. But the main percentage of publishers have been like, okay, we need to cater for this law or cater for this market. And so we're just going to do that for the entirety. I think it's an honorable thing to push stuff forward like that. It is good to see. There is a lot of non-compliance. There are these crazy cookie consent dialogues that say, do you agree to let us and all our partners set cookies? And nobody can consent to that because there's no specified purpose. There's an unknown list of counterparties. That's not consent. But having this sort of what seems like extortion, click here or you can't see my site, and you agree to give your data through cookies to all my partners and their partners, that's not compliant. And we're, we expect the regulators are acting against it. I think the Dutch Data Protection Authority already spoke against that. I think one of my wildest feature requests is that the Shields feature actually switches all those to deny all. I know it's unreasonable, but <laughs> that would be great. No, we're, we're working on that. It's tricky because there are laws involved, but in some cases, we're going to block those because they're just annoyance and they are clearly not complying. And that's part of Ray's mission is to be sort of the user's agent first, not some kind of browser that got captured by a search and ads business like Google Chrome, where Chrome actually does try to log you in to the browser if you use any Google service. And once you're logged into the browser, they actually track your navigation for ad targeting. This came out through reporting by ProPublica in 2016, which had to be repeated over and over, like The Guardian did a rerun of it. And even then, it took years for Chrome users to realize, hey, I'm using Gmail in a tab, uh, but there's this login to the browser widget in the upper corner. If I use that, am I being tracked? And it turns out you were since 2016. But then over a year ago, fall of 2018, they said, you know what? Gosh darn it, people aren't signing into Chrome enough. So if you use Gmail or YouTube or anything with a Google account in a tab, why well, we'll log you into the browser for your own good and, of course, track you. Now, you can go to your Google account and you can turn off that navigation tracking for ad targeting. But who does that? Most people don't. The defaults prevail at scale. And so Chrome had to become Google's sort of surveillance tool for their business. They're a public company. They're a fiduciary of their stock price. They have to think about how to keep the business growing and how to make ads perform better against competition from Facebook and now Amazon and others. I know from the early days, talking to Sergey Brin, that they had a completely different point of view in 2004, but things changed. Uh, we can talk about <laughs> what to do about that. There are other things besides privacy regulation. There's an open antitrust case in the US. There's been an ongoing anti-competition investigation of Google in Europe. But these things will take a long time. In the meantime, users, I think lead users can step up and use Brave to do something about it. So 
speaking of users sort of stepping up and using Brave, and you just recently passed 10 million monthly active users. That's a huge milestone. And that, that's a 19% growth since the launch of 1.0. I mean, congratulations. That's that's really, really huge. Yeah, thank you. We're uh, more like 11.3 at the end of the year and uh, pushing toward, you know, whatever, 12 and a half or whatever's coming next. We're accelerating growth this year. So we, we were going to drive up toward 20 million users. And at that point, we expect the ad deals will start to help with the revenue. We give 70% to the user, but most users let it go back to their publishers. So that also helps the publishers. Where do you see Brave going from here? So as we get users and we bring in these advertisers, who, like I say, are always game for a new way to reach a valuable audience, we do work more with publishers and I would say merchants, e-commerce. You're seeing a move that Brave is a part of to remove indirection from users' relationships to publishers, to advertisers, to merchants. There has been too much indirection through these parasitic intermediaries I mentioned, the ad exchanges, but also it hasn't been great, I think, for Amazon commodifying you if you're a manufacturer. And you've even seen some manufacturers, Thermocup, I think, leave Amazon and say, come to our website because then we can control the relationship with you directly. We can give you the best prices and promotions. We don't get undermined by cheap knockoffs. So I think one of the macro trends here is not just privacy, but direct directness, let's say, or getting rid of intermediation that is rent-seeking at best and <laughs> dangerous at worst. And Brave intends to do that. So we're talking to publishers. We've been working with Dow Jones Media Group for a while. And as we get scale, I think this becomes easier, becomes more turnkey, which is what the publishers need. They need something that is as simple to use as current ad tech, but without the tracking. So we can do that. We can mediate private ads in the browser and confirm them using cryptographic anonymity protocols. How do we do that? So normally when you're going around the web, you're being tracked by scripts or pixels. They call them that because they used to be little images, but now they're really just scripts or hidden requests that can associate an identifier with you using something like a, a third-party cookie or storage. Or if they can't do that, they can try to scrape enough bits of information to put you into a cloud of, of people that they try to identify as valuable. Like you own an iPhone, it looks like a high-end iPhone, you're in California. They can fingerprint you. That's less precise than tracking, but it, it has some value. Uh, sometimes they do both. We block all that junk, but that junk is the basis for picking an ad to show you. Because like you said, you go to a site, you buy a set of shoes, pair of shoes, and then you're given shoe ads for 30 days. It seems kind of silly, but it happens. There's just one site. If you go there, you're going to get car ads for 30 days because you're hashed into this category called the auto intender, someone who intends to buy a Automobile. In Brave, we take the view that your data belongs to you and it originates in the browser when you type, when you mouse, when you click. And that data, especially those search queries and how they lead to research and then ultimately shopping and buying, is hugely valuable. So you should get a big cut of that, 70%. We would not want to do that from our own servers. We're too small and why should you trust us? So all the analytics is local to the browser. It's all optional as part of this Brave Rewards. And if you join Brave Rewards, you can turn the ads off if you don't like ads and just bring your own money to give back to your sites if that's your inclination. So th there's a, a toolkit to choose from there. But we don't have any tracking. We don't have any scripts or pixels. And instead, we, we sort of invert the, the system by broadcasting a catalog of offers to everybody within the same region who speaks the same language. And that is a large anonymity set. By downloading that catalog, you're not 
identifying yourself. Everybody in the UK or, or everybody in the US or Northeast takes the same catalog. And we don't load those ads unless the machine learning in the browser picks from that catalog the best offer for you at the right time. And you can control the frequency up to 20 times a day, Not nothing crazy. You can tune it down if you don't like it. The ad agent tries to do it when you're not in the middle of typing or mousing or watching video. Uh, but this, this user ad model is a very direct way of brands reaching you at the right time in the right mood based on the sum of all your data, all your searches, your e-commerce, your clicking, your browsing. But we have all open source except for the server-side anti-fraud analytics. And we're trying to run a very clean system. So we, we match ads against a fixed catalog, fixed per day. New deals come into that catalog, old deals expire, but it's the same catalog for everybody in a large region. Wow, that is incredible. That is really fascinating. The one question that I have in it, and it might be the last one that we have time for, but uh, kind of software maker to software maker, you've made a lot of or contributed to a lot of browsers in your life. Is this an easier way to make a browser or is this uh, <laughs> one of the most complex ways? And nothing's easy. Obviously, I think you alluded to this. If we just said, hey, we're blocking everything that gives us great speed, which it does because blocking all those scripts means things load faster. It's three to six times faster in our measurements, which are in a report. We put out a reviewer's guide with our 1.0 release, and we have an updated blog post this week coming on. Three to six times faster also means you're not using the battery because you're not running the radio, the Wi-Fi radio, or the mobile phone radio as much for all those tracking scripts we block. So we block early in the network stack. We cut off the Hydra head before it sprouts more heads which happens all the time with, with ad tech scripts. They, they generate scripts that load scripts that load other scripts. It's called the programmatic waterfall. And so there are all these benefits to the user. We could have said, hey, that's complex enough. We'll stop there. Let's just make things faster for the user. And who cares about the ecosystem? Who cares about the publisher? And we could say, if you're a user who has an ecological mindset, sorry, you're going to have to subscribe or find some other way to support your creators. We won't help you. And in fact, we, we could have said, hey, just come and be a free rider. And there is a, a cohort of users, it's their choice, who say, I don't want to give back. Some of them even say, burn the whole system down, it's rotten. We decided to go into a more complex model because we want to help the publishers as well. Now, this may be a harder road. I think it's the right road. Blocking for protection by default, all the tracking scripts and as collateral damage, a lot of the ads, but allowing options for giving back. And we even started with a Bitcoin prototype in 2016. So that was before the basic attention token. And I think it's paying off. Users see the value. They see that we're not just a blocker. If you go into discussions with advertisers, and especially publishers, some big search engines even, and you say, hey, we're an ad blocker, they may show you the door. They may think, well, you're my enemy. Why should I deal with you? But if you say, we're doing something to protect users, but we're giving them a way to give back, and we want to cut out the intermediaries who take huge fees, up to 70% or more out of the gross, that should leave more money on the table for the publisher. That should leave uh, a better world for everybody. Truly, Brendan, this has been definitely been one of my favorite interviews. You have such a depth of knowledge and experience. I'm really glad that you took a few minutes out of your day to, to share that with us. Uh, is there anything that you would like to sort of share in parting with our listeners? Just that I hope people will try Brave and try clicking on that triangle to actually join Brave Rewards. And, you know, whatever you do on other systems or with other browsers, get some good protection because you need it and become part of this growing movement that is insisting on privacy by default. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. My pleasure. 
So I've, I've noticed a problem in the fact that Anna is gone. We're going to do real or no real. Yep. Real or not real. <laughs> real or no real. <laughs> I can't stop saying the Noel Edmonds version of this game. So I think both of us have to guess whether it's real or not real. And then we're going to go look it up. Then And then we'll go Google it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So scientists have developed... Oh. Nope. <laughs> No. <laughs> Scientists have not developed an immortal jellyfish. <laughs> Scientists have discovered an immortal jellyfish. Rue, what do you reckon? No. Uh, I mean... No. Can they not reproduce? Because wouldn't there be like quite a few of them if they were immortal? I mean, maybe. Here's the thing. We have no way of knowing if it's immortal or not. Okay? It may be very old, but it, life's, it may have a finite lifespan. So I'm actually going to be pedantic about this. Oh, okay. I see this. So he could live to be a thousand and then, you know. Yeah. I mean, we could consider that ostensibly immortal, but like, it's not really. I I realize why I said he. In my mind, it's got like a pipe and an old man's hat and it's like an old (laughs) jellyfish. Wow. All right. I know. I was, I was probably visualizing like, what would a really old jellyfish look like? (laughs) So... What do you think of it? Do you think it is real? I say no. What do you say? Um, I'm going to say it seems like the kind of thing that Anna wouldn't make up. So I'm going to go. I'm going to go real. Yeah. Because that's a really weird thing to make up, right? Yeah. Scientists have discovered an immortal jellyfish. Like that's unhinged to to make that up. It, it, yeah, for sure. The good news is it is real. Turns out this is real. Teratopus dorni is now officially known as the only immortal creature. Yeah, it was discovered in 1883 in the Mediterranean Sea. However, its extremely unique regeneration powers were not known to researchers and scientists until the mid-90s. The unique regeneration process of the mature immortal jellyfish is quite unique. When it is injured or starving, it will attach itself to a surface in warm waters and turns into a sort of living blob. From this blob state, its cells will undergo a process called transdifferentiation. Transdifferentiation is a process wherein cells will turn into different kinds of cells. For instance, the muscle cells of the immortal jellyfish can turn into egg cells or even sperm cells. Nerve cells can also turn into muscle cells. And this means that the immortal jellyfish has transformation powers, the likes of which have never been seen and are unmatched in the animal kingdom. Ever since the discovery of the immortal jellyfish in the Mediterranean Sea, more identical species have been found in places like the Atlantic Ocean, Spain, and even Japan. The reason they are so spread out is that they get caught in ballast waters that come from long-distance ocean cargo vessels. Holy cow. How about that? Uh, despite the immortal tag, these jellyfish can and do die. Well, then it's they're not immortal. For, ugh. for instance, they still get eaten by predators. Hang on. No, 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 no. They're not invulnerable. Yeah, right. Okay, that's true. Yep. Immortal means that you live forever. It doesn't mean you can't die. Okay, but hold on. Uh, all right. So they still get eaten by predators, and the process of transdifferentiation only kicks in when they have reached maturity. If they starve or get sick as polyps, they do not regenerate and therefore die. Well, okay. So I mean, I wouldn't mind it as a, as a superpower. Yeah, exactly. So like all things considered, like if they don't run into any sort of disease or starvation or predators, they could conceivably live forever. Huh. That's neat. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, would you want to live forever if like every 90 years you had to turn into a gelatinous blob like Odo from Star Trek Deep Space Nine? I mean, to be honest, I think when I get to 90, I'm probably going to be a gelatinous blob anyway. (sighs) So, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's probably true. Mm. 
this is great. The thing I want to know and that I my brain immediately goes to is like, how do I now become immortal? Like, how do we take this this jellyfish oh, thing? You get stung by this jellyfish. Oh. You put this jellyfish on your head. I see. And then mm. it, it's like Spider-Man. Is that how science works? I think so. Okay. That's what I've learned. Sorry. Well, good. I'm glad that's our takeaway. <laughs> uh, right. With that, I guess it's only left to say, love you, Rue. Yeah, love you too, Matt. Talk again soon. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> All right, good. I was actually recording too.